Hello, everyone, and welcome to Not Ready for Rhyme Time. I'm your host, Taylor Woodland, and welcome back. We had a one-week hiatus due to the Thanksgiving break, because let's be real, I had no time whatsoever to record. Family takes priority! Woo! Speaking of family, today I have a special episode for you. We're featuring an author, and this book happens to be about mysteries and memories, which means this person has a memory from childhood from their family, which is where I'm making this connection here, and then they also have a mystery story that goes along with it that they were told that they remember that their parents were telling them. I have featured this author before, but this was before I did full-length feature episodes. And this is this person's second book. This is by James W. Dean. The book for this one is titled Mysteries and Memories, a Collection of True Memories and Mysterious Short Stories. I will not be reading this whole book to you because that would take forever. So I'm just going to be reading the first memory and mystery to you. But here is the preface for this book. The stories in this book are inspired by memories of my childhood. My brothers, sisters, and myself spent many hours listening to the stories told by our mom, dad, and other family members. These were special times, when all the siblings' bickerings were put aside. A time when we would give our full attention to the stories that were being told. As I write these stories and write about my memories of time spent with my mom, dad, and family, it takes me back in time. My senses are filled with the smells, sounds, and feel of things from long ago. Things like the smell of wood burning in an old cast iron wood stove. Things like the sound of wood crackling and popping late into the night as the fire burns down to a bright glow. Watching the light from the fire dance on the ceiling until sleep overtook me. The feel of a hot burnt potato that has just been raked out of the red hot ashes of the wood stove. This is how we baked potatoes. The potato peeling black and falling from the potato. The texture of the coarse cornbread that has been crumbled up into the glass of cool milk. We ate it ever so slowly and listened to each word as the stories were told. I can smell the smoke from my dad's cigarette that he held between his fingers as he talked. I can hear the sizzle of the cornbread fritters as mom poured them onto the hot eye of the old wood stove. I can smell the cornbread as it is frying. This is as close as we got to pancakes. As I am typing, I can almost feel the cool, mushy mud between my toes from the riverbank, where we have gone for a picnic and a day of swimming and fishing. Even to this very day, every time I smell a freshly peeled orange, it takes me back to one of those Christmas mornings of long ago. Christmas was the only time that we saw an orange, a tangerine, chestnuts, or hard peppermint candy sticks. The stories that we were told on the cold winter's nights and on the hot summer days has become a part of my very soul. The words of some of the stories have become cloudy with time, and some have been forgotten altogether. 
However, the memories of those times remain as bright as the oil lamp that always sat on the coffee table, and as sharp as the smell of the kerosene that fueled it. I can feel the cold floor on my feet as I get out of bed on a December Sunday morning. I can hear my mom in the kitchen making coffee, the preacher's sincere voice calling out from the old clock radio. I can hear the two roosters crowing on the front porch, each trying to outdo the other. I can close my eyes and I can see my dad giving me that look that said, boy, you better behave yourself. I can hear my mom as I come in the door from school say, there's a pot of beans and a pan of cornbread on the stove when you are ready to eat. These memories from those days and nights a long time ago are what drives me to write. My memories of growing up with my mom, dad, brothers, and sisters are one of the most precious things that I own in this life. My childhood was filled with adventures as I explored wonderful places. I experienced city life and country life. I felt loved and secure, and I would not trade my childhood for anything. It is my hope that as you read this book, you will let yourself be taken back in time, back to a place that you once knew, maybe take you back to your very own memories and mysteries. The Mystical Lady of the James River The Memory as I sit here and look out over the rocky waterway of the swiftly moving James River, the sun is slipping slowly behind the tall maple trees. The long shadows on the ground are starting to hide the bright gold and red leaves that now cover the river bank. The thick, frothy white foam on the glimmering water splashes up against the brown boulders and rolls off down the river, only to be met by another wave of the milky foam. It is not long before the mass of foam is carried away by the ever-flowing water of this mighty river. I stare out over the white rapids and I can only wonder how far the water will carry the heavy foam before it is deposited onto a muddy river bank many miles away. My stare is interrupted as my eyes catch sight of a large river log floating rapidly along with the quickly moving water. The large piece of nearly black wood was once a mighty black walnut tree. I can almost see it standing tall on the river bank, with its strong bark-covered limbs reaching for the heavens. However, now it is only another water-soaked log on a long journey to the next bend in the river. Where it will be left to rot, trapped forever between a pair of giant, half-buried rocks that have set for centuries, unmoved by water, wind, and time. My thoughts now go back through the years to a time when I was a very young lad of twelve years old. I was on a fishing trip to this very riverbank where I am now sitting. I was with my father, and we were here to catch catfish— Hopefully, we would catch enough to feed our family of eight, plus the uncle and his family that would be arriving from out of state the next morning. This day was dark and gray, with a storm brewing in the near distance. The low rumble of thunder could be heard as the black clouds slowly drifted by. However, the storm did not matter to us. 
because my dad always said that the fish bite better when it is raining. On this day, that was true. As the cool rain fell and soaked our clothes and the fresh, clear water dripped from my ears and my nose, we caught a long stringer full of the gray, heavy-bodied catfish. My dad sat in the clearing between two slightly bent and leaning but strong and tall river birch trees. He had his long cane pole propped up tightly between the forks of a dry tree limb that he had stuck deeply into the muddy river bank. The thin, almost clear cat gut fishing line stretched far out into the murky water and was pulled tight by the river's current. He leaned back on the old folding stool where he was sitting, pulled a pack of Paul Mall cigarettes out of the pocket of his well-worn but clean white shirt. He lowered his arm and put his strong right hand into the large pocket of his dark blue and sharply creased work pants. He retrieved a packet of matches and struck one. The sharp smell of the sulfur from the match got my attention. I turned, and without speaking, I took a long, quiet look at my father. He took a deep, slow drawl of the bright white cigarette, and he let out a mouthful of misty smoke. The white smoke circled around his dark black hair that was combed back with just enough hair oil to keep it in place. As I watched, he bent over and picked up the can of black label beer. He threw back his head and in one long gulp finished off the cool can of beer. Then he stood up tall and straight to his full height. He planted both feet firmly into the soft soil of the riverbank. He put both hands on his hips as he clenched the now glowing cigarette between his lips. He looked out over the river, as if he were the king of the world. I thought that he was. But today he was just my dad. We walked about fishing. We talked of the river and about life. It surprised me how much he could always say with so few words. Things like, everything in this life will work out. You, son, just have to find out how you are going to make it work out. Or when hard times hit you, do not sit down and moan. Stand up, tighten your belt a notch, go to work, and make it better. It was on this day that after I had caught a large eel and I was struggling to hold on to it, that he showed me how to scratch out a deep cross in the cool ground with a stick and lay the eel into it. The twisting, slithering thing lay still long enough to remove the hook. I was amazed. Then the loud call of a fish hawk overhead brought me back to the present, just in time to see the large tree log go out of sight over a small rapid in the river. This sight took me again back to the fishing trip. Then I start to remember so many of the bits of wisdom that my dad shared with me. We never had long heart-to-heart -heart talks, but the things that he told me in those minutes in life, when he would look me in the eye and speak from his life experiences, have guided me through some very hard times. I am the man that I am and the man that I have been because of my mama's love and my dad's wisdom. The Mystery my dad told me that there was a very strange but true story about this river, and a man that had been brought to this very spot where we were fishing. 
He had been brought here unconscious and bleeding from the docks in downtown Richmond. John Davis was his name. It was on the 12th of November, 1913, and it seems that the man had been working on a canal boat that was being taken out of service. The man had worked on the boat for two years. Ever since he had come to Richmond from a dried-up farm out in Chesterfield County, John and his beautiful wife, Melinda, had grown up together. They lived in the thickly forested and very sparsely populated far western part of the county. Their childhood homes were only a mile apart, so they spent many hot summer days together as they grew into adults. Melinda was somewhat of a tomboy, but very pretty. John was a short but very strong muscular lad. The two could often be seen wading or swimming in the cool clear water of the creeks and farm ponds nearby their homes. They roamed through the thick green pine forest and John would always look hard to find Melinda, a delicate pink lady slipper growing in the soft forest soil. They walked the freshly plowed fields and felt the warm dirt on their bare feet. Neither of them even knew when they started holding hands as they walked. It just happened. They did not seem to even notice that they had fallen deeply in love as the years had gone by and they had grown into young adults. However, in love they did fall. The years went by rapidly as they always do when we are young. Melinda had grown into a beautiful young woman, no longer the tomboy of her youth. She had long black hair that her mother said came from her Cherokee great-grandma. Her eyes were as green as the rye grass growing on the hillside. Her lips were pale red and ended with a small dimple on each of her cheeks. John was now a man, by all definitions of the world. He was strong, brave, honest, and very much in love with Melinda. It was on one of those very hot summer days late in July. As the Virginia sun burned down hot on the small crowd gathered in the churchyard, that John and Melinda were married. The young couple had chosen to be married under the tall oak tree that stood on the bank of Horsepin Creek. The cool, shallow, but wide little creek that ran up close beside the small church. They could see the bright, stained glass window of the room where they had attended Sunday school classes so often as children. Here, under this old oak tree, is the very spot where they had shared their very first kiss, many years ago. Now, they were to begin their life together as man and wife. It was just a few months later, on land given to them by Melinda's father, that they built a very modest but very comfortable home. John's father gave to his son a fine young plow horse and an old one-row plow. John started farming right away. His first crop would be bright-leaf tobacco. This was to be a cash crop, and John was very excited. The money made from the tobacco would get the new family started on their journey through life. John took very good care of the plant beds as the tobacco seeds sprouted into strong, healthy tobacco plants. Young John put in the long, hard days of plowing the wide field one row at a time. Then when the freshly plowed ground had warmed up enough from the cold winter's frost, 
John made the long, straight, neat rows. He put the bright green tobacco plants into the fertile soil. They stretched out across the five-acre field like soldiers lined up for review on the parade ground. John stood at the lower edge of his grand tobacco field. He looked out over all his hard work. He thought, now I am a farmer. The young man dreamed of a good life on his farm with the girl that he loved so deeply. However, it was not to be. For the next six weeks after John had planted the tobacco, it did not rain one drop. The burning hot Virginia sun was too much for the young tender plants. Every single tobacco plant withered and dried up in the field. John and Melinda were heartbroken. Perhaps even worse, they were financially ruined almost before they had even started farming. With not one dollar left for them to live on, and the house and land mortgaged beyond its value, the young couple did not know what to do next. With few choices left to them, Melinda packed up her few belongings and went home to her father and mother. John went to Richmond to find a way to make a living for him and his new wife. He would send for Melinda as soon as he could find a job and earn some money. The vision of Melinda's face burned in his mind day and night. He missed his bride so much that his very heart hurt. Every day that he was away from her made him miss her more. However, all he could do was work hard, make some money, and then send for his loving wife. Young John had only been working on the canal boat for three weeks, and he had just drawn his first pay. He finally had some cash in his hand. The young man thought that he would only have to work three more weeks and he could send for Melinda. Then they could be happy and start their family, and maybe they could start a good life together in the city. But then an even worse disaster fell upon John. On a stormy Monday morning, as the thunder boomed overhead and the rain came down in a pounding flood, a telegram was delivered to the canal boat where he was working. John stood in the rain and read the horrible news. The barefooted Melinda had been working in her father's cotton field when she stepped on a large copper head. The aggressive snake bit the girl on her ankle and the bottom of her foot. Melinda was carried to her parents' house and put into her old bed. As her legs swelled and the poison raced toward her heart, she called out for her husband John. The poisonous bites were treated and the doctor was called for. However, it was no use. By the time the doctor made his way from the city out to the farmhouse, Melinda was dead. John could not believe the horrible news. He nearly went insane. The sad and forlorn man felt as if his heart would burst with grief. John left Richmond and went back to the country home of his childhood. Then on a bright, cloudless day, with the songbirds singing a low tune from the tops of the maple trees, the beautiful azaleas were in full bloom and the scent of honeysuckle in the air. John buried the woman he loved so dearly. When it came time for the casket to be lowered into the cold earth, John had to be restrained. He refused to let go of the shiny brass handle of the pearl-white coffin. Everyone there said that they felt like the young man had buried a large part of himself with her. John sat at the grave of his one and only true love for the rest of the day and late into the night. 
Then, as the stars twinkled in the night sky, and the lonesome call of the whip-poor-willow drifted off into the pine forest, John leaned over and kissed the cool earth that covered the white coffin of his precious Melinda. He said, Goodbye. With nothing else to do with his life, he went back to the city and threw himself into the work on the canal boat. He had lost his home and land trying to make the dry Virginia ground give up a crop. He had lost his beautiful and loving wife to a chance encounter with a large copperhead. However, all of that was in the past. John knew of only two things that he could do now. He would have to go on with life or go into his own grave and be with Melinda somewhere above the clouds. The grieving, heartbroken man thought long and hard about finding his very own grave. He thought about how he could travel into the snowy white clouds and find his Melinda. However, John went on with life, just doing the best that he could do. He earned his pay on the canal boat with the strength of his back. He loaded and unloaded the bales of cotton and the barrels of tobacco day after day. The little money he earned kept a rusted tin roof over his head and a bit of salt pork and potatoes on his table. John often sat in his little one-room shack and stared out over the James River. He sat and dreamed about his Melinda and the life that they never had a chance to live. John grieved for his wife, and he worked on. The man had always been paid at the end of each three-week stretch. However, on this day, as the boat was being taken out of service, it had been just eight days since his last payday. When old John Davis went to the boat captain to collect his pay, he was told that he would not be paid because he had not completed his three-week workload. John David protested angrily and demanded the pay that he was due for the eight days of work. The boat captain just told him to leave his office. John could not believe that he was being cheated out of the money that he had worked so hard for. He stepped forward toward the boat captain. The captain called for help. Before John could defend himself, two large dock workers grabbed him from behind and dragged him out of the door of the captain's office. The two men dropped him hard onto the wet, muddy, cobblestone street. John immediately jumped to his feet and started back inside. The two men attacked him with oak clubs, and soon he was unconscious. The boat captain stepped to the office door, looked out at John, and told the men to just get rid of him. The men carried John down to a secluded clearing on the bank of the wide James River, to the very spot where many years later my father and I would be catching catfish. Here on the unsettled and overgrown river bank, the men cut down two white ash trees and trimmed the branches from them. They tied them together and put the injured and unconscious John Davis onto the logs. With a hard push, the tree trunks went into the swift current of the cold rocky river. The makeshift raft slid quickly into the swiftly moving waters. It bounced off a couple of large boulders and made its way into the rapids and disappeared down the river. John Davis floated down the dark waters of the ancient river all night, with the bright Virginia full moon shining down on his motionless body. The helpless man floated downriver most of the next day without regaining consciousness. Then, as the mighty James River widened and spread out to a width of nearly a mile wide, and the current picked up speed as it made its way towards the Chesapeake Bay.
John Davis was jolted to a state of wakefulness when the rickety makeshift raft slammed into a tree-lined river bank. John raised himself up and sat very still on the shaky raft, trying to figure out where he was and what had happened. The last thing he remembered was that he had been standing on the cobblestone street in Richmond. Then he remembered the angry words with the boat captain and the struggle with the two men. Now, here he was on this unfamiliar riverbank with no idea as to where he was. John rolled himself off the raft and crawled up the muddy riverbank. He stood looked around, and walked a short distance into the edge of the woods. He was very dizzy. His head was hurting, and dry blood covered the back of his head. John spotted a fallen tree and made his way over to it. He sat down and reached up to fill the large knot on the back of his head. The dried blood had his matted hair stuck tightly to his head. Then with his fingertips, he searched for the cut on the back of his skull. After pulling the hair away from the cut, he could tell that the injury was not a very bad one, but there was a large knot that nearly covered one side of his head. Still very dizzy, and with his head hurting badly, he made his way back over to the river's edge. John removed his shirt and soaked it in the cold water of the river. As he stood up, he placed the balled-up, cool shirt on the large knot on his head. John thought, what am I going to do? With his options very limited, the weak man started walking down the riverbank. He would just walk until he came to a farmhouse. Surely a beautiful part of the river like this would have some farms built nearby. The lost man followed the riverbank with the bright Virginia sun burning down on his sore aching head. The bright light danced between the green leaves of the large river birch, maple, and poplar trees as he made his way slowly along the river. The only sound that broke the soft sounds of the river rushing by was the call of gulls, eagles, and the occasional chant of a passing flock of wild geese. John walked on, holding the cool, wet shirt to his head, but his headache was not getting any better. Now his eyesight was getting blurry, and his ears were starting to ring. Something was wrong. The blurry-eyed man walked on. He had only walked a few miles along the waterway when he found himself at the edge of a low-land swamp. There was nothing else to do but to try and make his way through the black water. He took long steps over the fallen trees and the large roots that were protruding from the surface of the murky water. With each step he took, he got deeper into the darkness of the dreary swamp. The land under the shallow water turned to a very thick, sticky, black mud. John now struggled to pull his feet up with each step. The black mud of the swamp sucked at his feet and legs, and the cold water chilled him to his very bones. It was extremely tiring to have to struggle with each step, and in a short while he was exhausted. The man found a large tree stump that was far enough out of the water to be dry. John decided to rest for a while, so he sits down on the old stump to catch his breath. He had been sitting there only a few minutes, when out of a large, rotted-out hollow in the tree stump he spotted a very large, cotton-mouth water mossican slithering out. The thick, dark snake was just under his feet. John froze with fright. To jump up and try to run would surely draw the snake's attention, and it may strike and bite him. So the very scared man slowly lifted his feet and watched as the dark water mossican made small, silent ripples in the surface of the stagnant water as it glided across the swampy surface. 
John stood and watched the very poisonous snake move from one tree stump to another until it was out of sight. With his head still hurting, his ears ringing, and the dizziness making it hard to walk, he moved on. John was now praying for two things, some cool, fresh water to drink, and that he would not have to spend the night in this god-forsaken swamp. Just as he thought he could not go any further without water and sleep, the tired, injured man saw a welcome sight. It was the orange clouds of a bright setting sun peeking through the dark branches of the tall river birch trees that lined the mucky swamp. He could see a clearing at last, and he could hear the trickling of a small creek. John started to move more quickly, and in a matter of minutes he stepped out onto dry earth again. As the very dizzy man walked onto the dry ground, it felt very good under his feet. The grass was now growing tall and green. John looked out across the field as the cool breeze dried the sweat from his face. Not more than twenty yards away, he saw the glimmer of the cool, clear water rushing through the small stream on its way to the mighty river. He made his way over to the water and drank his fill. Then suddenly he was overtaken by fatigue. John gathered up a pile of the soft, green, sweet-smelling grass. He made a primitive bed, laid his tired body down, and was soon fast asleep. John slept like the dead. The man was not aware of how long he had slept or where he was. Then suddenly he was awakened by the soft touch of a hand and a low, caring voice calling out to him, "'Stranger! Stranger! Are you alive?' He slowly opened his eyes and looked up into the blinding sunlight. He raised up his right hand and cupped it over his bleary eyes. The burning sun was making his eyes watery and his vision hazy. However, he could make out the dim figure of a lovely woman. Or was it an angel? Then the figure in front of him spoke again. Stranger! Stranger! Do you hear me? John raised himself up to a sitting position. The shaky man with the bad head injury lowered his hand from over his eyes. He picked up his wet shirt and wiped away the cloudy sleep from his face. John gasped when he moved the shirt away from his eyes. There standing right in front of him was a very pretty young lady. He thought that smile, those eyes, her voice, the long coal black hair. For a minute he thought it was his Melinda. John stood up on his tired sore legs. He turned his face out of the sun and took a long look at the woman. All thought of Melinda passed from his mind as he spoke. Praise be to God. Who are you? Where did you come from? The woman took John by the hand and asked, Are you all right? Are you hurt? The somewhat confused man answered her with a quick, Yes, I think I'm okay. But who are you? The kind woman answered, My name is Laura Jackson. But more importantly, who are you? John Davis began to tell the woman what he could remember. His name was John. He had been working on a canal boat in Richmond. He had gotten into a quarrel with some men, and when he woke up on the river bank, he had wandered through a swamp, and here he was. Laura noticed the blood caked in his hair. She told John to turn around. Then with a soft, tender touch, she examined the large knot on his head. It was nothing she could do for him there in the middle of the grassy field. Laura told John to follow her to her cabin. The pair walked only a short distance, and they were at the river. 
There, in a beautiful tree-lined clearing nestled closely up to the majestic James River, was a small but well-constructed cabin. Laura led John along the pathway. They passed the chickens pecking at the tender spring grass. He looked around the clearing and noticed two large white oxen in a rough pin near the river. The old brown and white cow grazed lazily in the front yard. They made their way onto the wide front porch. John sat down on a sturdy but twisted piece of driftwood. Laura slowly opened the heavy oak door. The rusted hinges squeaked and the gruff bark of a frightened dog met their ears. She called out to her pet, Jake, go lay down. The dog was quiet. She turned to John and told him to come inside and close the door. As John entered the dimly lit room, the smell of fish frying caused him to raise his head and take in a long breath of the good-smelling air. He spoke in a very soft whisper. I'm so hungry. More to himself than to Laura. Then he turned to her and said, I don't know when I last ate. The woman looked at her guest and told him to go sit at the table. She said that she would clean and bandage the cut on his head, and then he could eat. The gentlewoman softly cleaned the dried blood from his head and took the balled-up bloody shirt from John's hand. She went into the kitchen where the fish were frying. Laura went over to the old hand pump and quickly raised the handle and pushed it down. Then out of the long curved spout came a gushing stream of clear, fresh water. As the cool water ran from the spout, the woman rinsed most of the blood from the shirt. She placed the shirt between two smooth boards and pushed down hard on them to mash out the water. Laura carried the shirt over to John and handed it to him. The shirt was still very damp, but John stood up, put it on, and buttoned it up. Then he sat back down at the shiny, wide table. Laura proceeded over to the old black wood stove where the heavy cast iron frying pan was sizzling with a fresh mess of crispy fried catfish. She took a large tin plate down from the thick oak wood shelf that sat above the old black stove. With a steady hand, the woman used a wooden fork to retrieve two large pieces of the light brown and heavily breaded fish from the hot sizzling grease. She placed them onto the tin plate with a large chunk of hard corn bread that had been sitting on the back burner of the hot stove. Laura took a couple of steps across the rough knotted pine floor of her kitchen and placed the cornbread and catfish in front of the very hungry man. John ate the delicious catfish and dry cornbread, then looked up from the plate and said, Melinda, may I have a glass of water? The woman turned to John and said, My name is Laura, Laura Jackson. The still somewhat confused man quickly apologized and repeated, Laura, may I have some water? The soft-spoken woman went out to the back porch and retrieved a small galvanized bucket. She went over and pumped the handle on the old water pump. The tin bucket quickly filled with freshly drawn water from the deep old well that sat under the back porch. She stepped across the squeaky old floor, took down a light blue crystal glass from the faded old china cabinet behind the door. Laura sat the bucket and glass on the table. John poured the cool, clear liquid into the glass, turned it up, and drank it down in one long gulp. Then he quickly poured another glass full and drank it much more slowly.
Laura sat down at the table with John, and they began to talk. The woman wanted to know in detail all about where John had come from and how he had ended up in her cow pasture. He told her all that he could remember about the fight with the men and his trip down the James River. As they talked on, John told Laura all about his past. He told her of his farm and about the life and death of his wife, Melinda. When he had told her all that he could about his past, he looked at her and asked, "'Now what about you? Where's your man? When will he be home?' Laura just said that she did not have a man and that she had not had one there for many years. John could tell by the look in her eyes and the sound of her voice not to ask any more questions." The bright sun of the warm day was now giving away to the long shadows of a cool evening. John Davis stood up, bowed slightly to his host, and said that he had best be getting along and to try to find a place suitable to spend the night. It would soon be dark, and he could not be stumbling around in the darkness of night over land that he did not know. He took a few steps toward the door, stopped, and turned around and said, Thank you again. I think you may have saved my life. Laura just smiled at him. John reached out and turned the old brass doorknob, opened the heavy wooden door, and walked out onto the long, wide porch. The peaceful blue sky was starting to turn the dark gray of late evening. As he walked the four steps down from the porch and set both feet onto the dusty, bare spot of ground at the bottom of the unpainted steps, Laura came onto the porch and called his name. "'John Davis, I will tell you that if you are the honorable man that you appear to be, I will not be put out if you cared to sleep in the barn. There is plenty of fresh hay in the loft, and I think you will be most comfortable there. You will certainly be better off than sleeping on the roadside.' John lowered his head and spoke softly. "'Ma'am, I would be most grateful to you for such a generous offer.' Laura replied, "'Then let's say no more of it. You will find blankets in the back storeroom. Breakfast is at sunup. I hope you like brown eggs from the hen house and poke salad from the edge of the pasture. That's what we are having.' With a small tear in the tired man's eye, he looked up at Laura and said, "'Melinda, you are an angel.' She once again said, "'My name is Laura.' John gave her a sad smile, then he turned and made his way to the large barn. John opened the rustic old door, went inside, and closed the door behind him. He was met by the smell of fresh-cut, half-green hay, and the sight of small specks of dust softly floating in the thick air. Laura entered the cabin, lit the oil lamp, and went and sat in her rocking chair. She read her Bible for a short time, then went to bed and did not give her guest another thought. John slept well, tucked away safely in the comfortable hayloft. He was awakened at first light by the loud crowing of the old black-and-white game rooster. As he opened his eyes, he saw the dim rays of morning slipping through the cracks in the weatherboard siding of the old barn. As John opened the barn door and stepped out into the barn yard, a warm summer wind met him. He wiped the sleep from his eyes with the tail of his shirt. He noticed that the cloth was dry for the first time in days. With both hands, the now happy man smoothed his hair back over his head, then looked up at the last of the twinkling stars. John searched the horizon for the moon, and there it was very low in the dim morning sky, shining down on the soft flowing water of the James River. He thought, this is what heaven must be like. 
Then he was brought back to reality by the calling voice of his new friend. If you like your breakfast hot, you had better get to stepping on in here. John started for the house. Laura said the coffee is on the back burner of the stove. Help yourself. As he walked into the front porch room, Laura's dog took a few steps toward the man and let out a vicious bark and growl. Laura spoke firmly. Jake, go lay down. The dog went over by the large fireplace and took his spot on the floor. John and Laura had their breakfast at the heavy kitchen table. They again talked about John's past, but Laura would not talk of hers. The man left the subject alone. After breakfast, John told Laura that he would look around the farm and see what needed to be attended to. Without a man living there, it must be some things that needed to be done. Laura said that yes, the fence down by the river needed repairing, and the barn doors needed new hinges, the chicken coop needed new wire, and the kitchen roof leaked. The woodshed was nearly empty, and the corn crib needed to be filled from the cornfield. John said, I better get right to work. He took his leave from his gracious friend and went right to work. John worked all day and late into the evening. He only stopped once to eat the lunch that Laura brought to him as he came down off the roof. As the sun set slowly down over the waters of the river and the bob whites called in the dimming light of the evening, John went into the house and sat down by the fireplace. Jake did not bark at him, and as the tired man sat down, the dog raised his head and licked the man's hand. John had made another friend. John did not return to the hayloft that night. He slept on the floor of the large living room. This would be where John slept for many weeks, until one evening, after a very hot day, the clouds turned from gray to black. Then the thunder clouds exploded loud enough to wake the dead. The bright streaks of lightning danced across the summer sky, and the rain came down like water poured from a bucket. Laura had gone to bed, and John had just put out the flame on the old oil lamp. He was just laying down on his pallet of soft blankets when a bolt of lightning raced from the sky and hit the old oak tree outside of Laura's window. He heard Laura call out for him at the top of her voice. He ran into her room and quickly went to her bedside. She raised up from her bed and grabbed onto John's neck with both arms. John just sat there and held her tightly and did not move. After a long while, the storm moved on across the river, and only the faint sounds of the rolling thunder could be heard in the distance. The storm was over. Laura was fast asleep in the arms of the strong, tender man. John Davis slept that night sitting on her bed. He barely moved all night for fear of waking Laura. After that night, John and Laura were almost inseparable. They worked the farm together, day after day, week after week, and month after month. Time passed very quickly now for John and Laura. They lived in the house by the river for many years. They never let a full day pass that the couple did not take a long walk along the river bank. They would often stop and just stand and listen to the soft rush of the water as the river made its way to the bay. They would sit quietly on an old tree stump, hold hands, and listen to the soothing call of the whip poor willows, the bob whites and the geese. John spent his days caring for the livestock and tending to the crops. Laura kept the house clean and she cooked for her and John. Life was good for them. John still often called her Melinda. Laura always just said, my name is Laura. They always turned out a good crop from the fertile riverside fields 
and the James River gave them an unending supply of fish and waterfowl. John's hazy mind had gotten better through the years, but he still often called out to Melinda. As always, Laura would just remind him that her name was Laura. The little farm was doing so well that John often made trips into the town of Rushmore, near Holly Point on the James. Here he could sell or trade the extra corn, potatoes, and other vegetables, and he could get the dry goods that they needed on the farm. John met many of the local farmers and merchants in the town. He would sit and talk with them for hours and enjoyed getting the news from the outside world. John also very much enjoyed talking about his life with Laura, although he often called her Melinda. The local men of the town had told John on many occasions that they were not aware of a Laura Jackson living out that way. They had no knowledge of a farm over there on the James River. However, that may not be so strange as people came and went quickly on the river. If you were not a hardy soul, you could not make a farm on the wide river bank, and many people just moved on. John Davis became a fixture in the shops of Rushmore. He came to know almost everyone in town. He looked forward to the trips into town, and the town people often looked forward to John bringing his crops to sell. Old John talked so often about his beautiful Laura and told everyone that would listen about the wonderful days that they spent together on the farm. Then, one day while John was in town, he was trading a wagon load of bright yellow corn for his monthly need of lard, coffee, sugar, and molasses. He had just finished unloading his wagon and was carrying the last sack of corn into the general store, when all at once there was a terrible explosion that came from just inside the open front door of the store. A careless cigar in a box and dynamite is a lethal combination. Fire, thick black smoke, and pieces of heavy wood belched out across the street. The blast took away the entire front of the store. It also lifted John Davis off the floor of the now-burning store. It propelled him through the plate glass window and into the muddy street. The bright fire, the thick smoke, and the loud noise brought the town people running. As they gathered to help put out the blazing fire, old Doc Smith came across the street and found the injured John Davis. The man was near death, burned badly with many broken bones. He was barely able to speak. Old Doc Smith bent down on one knee and gently raised John's head. The weak man tried to speak but could only get out a whisper. The good doctor sat down on the muddy ground and placed one leg under John's head. He leaned over and put one ear close to the dying man's face. John repeated what he had been trying to say. He gazed into the sad face of the caring old doctor. He said to him, Please tell my Melinda. She should know that I died thinking of her. The doctor asked John, Who do you want me to tell? With his last breath, John said, Oh, I'm sorry. Tell Laura that I'm thinking of her. With that, he closed his eyes, let out a long, low moan. Then laying there in the muddy street, with the fire blazing and the people running all about with water buckets, old John Davis looked up into the beautiful blue sky with the puffy white clouds gently floating by. He clenched the old doctor's hand and took one last long breath. He mumbled the word, Melinda, and he left the world of the living. He was no more on this earth. John's body was carried to the local undertaker and prepared for burial. 
Doc Smith told some of John's friends about his last request. Although they were still confused as to who Melinda was, they knew that Laura Jackson must be told about her man's death. They picked out three of the townspeople that knew John best and sent them out to the farm on the banks of the James River to tell Laura that John would not be coming home. When the party of men reached the farm, they were at a loss for words. The farm was not the beautiful place that John had always talked about. The old house had not had any repairs in many years. One side of the long porch had caved in, and the roof had blown off one side of the house. There was no livestock, and the pens and pastures were all overgrown with tall weeds. The large barn that John had talked of so often was nothing more than a run-down shed. However, there was a large vegetable field that covered several acres. The men did not know what to think. Old John Davis had been misleading them for all these years? Or had he? The men went into the run-down house looking for Laura. What they found surprised them all. There in the front room was only one old chair. As they entered the kitchen, they saw one old tin plate on the table and one cracked ceramic cup beside it. As they searched the rest of the house, they found only John's clothes. Not one single item belonged to a woman. It was clear that there was not a woman living in the place. The men went back to town and buried old John Davis in the poor man's cemetery just outside of town. There was not even a headstone, and the whereabouts of the grave has long ago been lost to time. Now, there has been a lot of speculation as to just what happened out there on that farm that sat so peacefully on the majestic river. Some people say that Laura Jackson died and John refused to admit it. Others say that there never was a Laura Jackson, that she was only in the mind of a man with a very bad head injury and a badly broken heart. Then there are those that say John Davis had seen an angel when he awoke in the green grassy fields many years ago. They say that his Melinda had come down from the clouds that day. She had come down to save her loving husband. It has been said that John Davis lived out the rest of his life in a world that existed only in his head, and of course, in his heart. No one knows the truth about John's last years on this earth. However, what we do know is that many people have been out to the place where the old farm once stood, out there on the banks of the beautiful, ever-flowing James River. They all say that if you are there in the evening, as the first stars of the night start to twinkle in the Virginia sky, if you look out over the grassy fields, past the tall weeping willow trees, as the bob whites and the willow wisps call, when the gray of the evening drifts off and gives away to the black of the night, you will see the mystical lady of the James River, walking the riverbanks looking for John Davis. Maybe one day she will find him again, because you see, true love never dies. That was The Mystical Lady of the James River from the book Mysteries and Memories by James W. Dean. I will leave a link for you on where you can purchase his book off Amazon. This has been an extra long podcast episode, but we'll just say it's to make up for missing last week. Thank you so much, James, for submitting your book again. If you guys enjoyed this reading, you can 
subscribe on CastBox. I'd much appreciate it. You can also follow me on Twitter at TaylorWoodland5. I post regular updates on the podcast and tell you about themed episodes when they come up. This has been Not Ready for Rhyme Time, and I have been your host, Taylor Woodland. Remember, mind the gap. Here's some bloopers if you're still listening. The low rumble of thunder could be heard as black crowd. We caught a long stringer of... He took a deep, slow drawl of the what? What? As I watched, he bent over and picked up the can of black label beer. He threw his bat have guided me through some of... Ever since he had come to Richmond from a dried-up farm out in Chester County, John was now a man, but all definition... It was on one of those very hot summer days late in July, as the Virginia sun burned down hot on the small crowd it gathered in... uh, Here under this... Uh, they stretched out across the five-acre field like soldiers lined up for review on the parade ground. The young couple did not know what to do next. Every day that he was away from her made him miss hurt more. The aggressive snake the men carried John down to a secluded, sclu- to the very spot where many years later his father and I. John rolled himself off the raft and crawled up the muddy, muddy m- p- the dried blood had his matted hair. St- <sighs> John started to move more quickly in a mat. Not more than twenty yards away, he saw the glimmer of the cool, clear water running. The shaky man with the bad hedge. He picked up his wet shirt and wiped away the cloudy, cloudy. For a minute, he thought it was his Melinda. John stood up on his torch. There, (coughs) Laura spoke from. Without a man living there, it must be something. He barely moved all night for fear of waking Lorla, the Bob Whites, and the geese.